So the second point in Paul's understanding of his own evangelistic ministry uh, follows from the first, which was his, his primary task in evangelism was to teach truths about Jesus Christ. That's, that's point two. To teach truths about Jesus Christ. Um, his job was to get across the message that his Lord had charged him to deliver. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.17 that Christ sent me to preach the gospel. And the Greek word here is euangelizomai, which means proclaim the euangelion, which is the good news, the gospel, the good news. Uh, Paul was to proclaim it, and it's like it was really unlike anything the Jewish or the Greek world had guessed or expected. But it was something that the whole world needed and still needs. Uh, So the gospel is God's full and final disclosure of what God, the Creator, has done and will do to save sinners. It's really the complete unfolding of what might be called the spiritual facts of life uh, in God's um, apostate world. So what was this good news that Paul preached? Well, it was good news about Jesus of Nazareth, uh, about his incarnation, his atonement, his kingdom. Uh, in other words, the, uh, the cradle, the cross, and the crown uh, was the whole story of, of Jesus as the Son of God. It was really news of how God made his son man And how as man, God made him to be prophet and a priest and a king. And how as prophet, he was was the lawgiver. He was giving the law to his people. As a priest, he was a sacrifice for sins. And uh, as a king, he was made judge of all the earth. And given prerogatives, which in the Old Testament were exclusively Jehovah's. For example, uh, he was to reign until every knee would bow to him. And whoever would call upon his name would be saved. In short, the good news was that God has executed his eternal intention to glorify his son by exalting him as a great savior for great sinners. This was the gospel he was sent to preach. And admittedly, it was a message of some complexity. There's a lot involved in that message. Uh, It needed to be learned before it could be lived. And it needed to be understood before it could be applied in their lives. So it therefore needed to be taught and so Paul, as a preacher, had become a teacher. In fact, he saw his part of his calling as that way. In 1 Timothy 2.11, he writes, quote, The gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. And he tells us something. Uh, he tells us that teaching was basic to his evangelistic practice. He speaks of Christ in in Colossians 1.28, Christ of whom we preach, 
teaching every man in all wisdom. It was by teaching that uh, he proclaimed his, his uh, he fulfilled his ministry as proclaiming the gospel. Let's look. Let's look for example just how Luke describes Paul's way of proclaiming the gospel. In turn to the book of Acts, if you would. We'll begin at chapter 9. And in verse 28, uh, Luke, Luke says, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. So this wasn't uh, a sermon. It wasn't a one-way communication. It was di- it was. It was he was talking back and forth. He disputed among the Hellenists. Or chapter 17 and uh, verse 2. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with, the, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. The word, that word there, the Greek word is dialogomai which we get our word dialogue, dialogamai. He reasoned uh, with them from the scriptures. Uh, Chapter 19, verses 8 and 9, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, Reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And back in, verse, in chapter 18, verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And then Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is plain of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It was to bring light. It was to open up the scriptures. It was teaching them what the scriptures taught. Point three, this is, a, this is the new handout for today. Paul's ultimate aim was to convert his hearers to faith in Christ. The word convert is a translation of the Greek epistrepo, which, which uh, means and is often translated to turn. To turn. We think of conversion... Uh, and this is what we're talking about in converting someone to turn their life around in a sense to turn. So we think of conversion as a work of God and certainly from one standpoint it is. But it's striking to observe that in the three New Testament passages where epistrepo is used transitively of converting someone the subject of the verb is not God as we might expect it to be but the proclaimer. For example, Luke 1.16 says, the angel, of, 
the angel said of John the Baptist, this is the angel speaking to the father of John the Baptist about the birth of John the Baptist. And the angel said of John the Baptist, Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And James 5.19, James says, Brothers, if any one of you, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And again, Paul himself tells Agrippa how Christ had said to him, I quote, I am sending you to the Gentiles, this is God speaking to Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And then he goes on to explain how he, he was uh, obedient to the heavenly vision by proclaiming to both Jews and Gentiles, quote, that they should repent and turn to God. Now, these passages represent the converting of others as the work of the proclaimer. A task which they are performed by summoning men to turn to God in repentance and faith. Now, this is not to call into question the truth that we already talked about, properly speaking. It is God who saves. It is God who grants repentance and faith uh, and causes that person to believe. What these pastors are saying is simply that the conversion and salvation of others was to be the proclaimer's objective. In other words, we're not just to, pro- just to teach information, but to call people to repentance and faith. And, you know, oftentimes this is where we get nervous <laughs> with people. We're okay with, with sharing truths about, about Jesus and, and all that. But we get nervous when it comes to the point of saying, what are you going to do about these truths? You know, to repent, to call them to repentance and faith. Uh, But that's, it's not evangelism just sharing information. Evangelism includes that call to repentance and faith. And uh, we'll say more about that later, but... Uh, you'll notice, uh, take a look at, for example, at 1 Corinthians 9, how Paul describes uh, this process of conversion. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse uh, 19 and following. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I'm not, my, not, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in his blessings. He's seeking to win people, not just to inform them. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. 
Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one, one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So, he's saying that, that a wife can, can have an impact on bringing her unbelieving husband to the Lord by her own uh, behavior and conduct. And uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 9 for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. So just the, the terms he used to gain, to win, to catch uh, others for Christ. In fact, in Matthew 4.19, when he called his disciples, he says, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So there was, in Paul's evangelistic preaching, both instruction, uh, you find it in, in 2 Corinthians 5, when he said, God was in Christ rec- reconciling the world to himself. That's instruction. But then he says, we beseech you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the, that's the uh, application there. That's the invitation to come in repentance and faith. As an apostle of Christ, he was more than a teacher. He, he, was, a, he was more than a teacher of truth. He was actually a shepherd of souls. He, uh, he was sent into the world not to lecture sinners, but to love them. And uh, he describes his ministry in that way. Packer says in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, that that Paul was second, was an apostle second, and a Christian first. And as a Christian, he was a man called to love his neighbor. This meant simply that in every situation, by every means possible, in his power, it was his business to seek other people's good. So from this standpoint, the significance of his apostolic commission to evangelize and to start churches was simply that this was the particular way in which Christ was calling him to fulfill the law to love his neighbor. His business was to present truth in a spirit of love and and an expression and implementation of his desire to save his hearers. I think uh, Paul describes his attitude uh, in, uh, in regard to evangelism in 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15 where he says, I seek not what is yours, but you. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That was his, that was his passion. We're all called, you know, we're all called to love our neighbor. How we do that is how God has put us together in our particular you know, personalities and all of that. Uh, we're, we're not uh, all called to stand up in front of a crowd of people and proclaim the gospel. Uh, but we can speak to a neighbor one-on-one or an unsaved relative or whoever it might be. Uh, we, can, we can show concern for when people have needs. Those are ways God uses uh, us in terms of loving our neighbor to in essence um, water the soil prepare the soil for the word uh, 
Someone once said, uh, an unbeliever has to hear the music of the gospel before they're ready for the words. And his point was that the music of the gospel is our, our behavior, our actions, how we interact with unbelievers. Uh, and uh, that, that is, in a sense, is preparing the soil for the seed, the good seed. Paul made warm-hearted and affectionate. He, uh, his love for people made him warm-hearted and affectionate his, in his dealings with people. He says in 1 Thessalonians, speaking about the Thessalonians, that church that he started, he says, We were gentle among you, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very near to us. He wasn't content merely to throw truth at them. You know, it's like, here it is, take it or leave it, you know, kind of a thing, and go on. Uh, but to spend time with them, to get alongside of people, to uh, start thinking with them where they were and bring them along uh, in terms that they could understand. And to avoid everything that would prejudice a person against the gospel and putting a stumbling block in their way. I, I remember an, an experience uh, when I was on the staff at Youth for Christ in the mid-70s. Um, we were, we were at home gathering with you know, high school students. That's what Youth for Christ ministry is, a ministry to high school students. And uh, one, one particular boy there asked if, if I could give him a ride home. I said, sure. So took him home. We, we drove up, got to the front of his house. And before he got out, he says, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, if I never accepted your Jesus, would you still be my friend? Wow. I, I, I you know, well, I said, sure. And, but on the way when driving back home, I'm thinking, wow, what, what kind of attitude am I presenting here to this kid? Is it like, does he, does he think I'm seeing him as just, you know, a, a target kind of a thing, uh, a, uh, a, a notch that I can put on my, in my gun handle, you know, after I bring him to Christ kind of a thing. Is he just a, you know, that kind of a thing. It really, it really forced me, I never have never forgotten that, that question. And uh, it's a question we, we, we all should think about when we think about evangelism is this, you know, am I doing this because I really, I really care for this person? And sometimes I think, the, I think uh, you know, if we, if we begin to see evangelism as like, well, I'm not a Christian if I don't actually get out there and, you know, do this or that or bring somebody to Christ or something and put pressure on ourselves and, and think it's totally up to us, then, then we're liable to act that way in our evangelism. Uh, but rather say... Who has God put in? Who, is, who has God put around me? Who, who can I, you know, who, who can, how can I love my neighbor, in essence, and start there and just allow God to work in that relationship? 
it's over a period of time. Often, most of the time, it's over a period of time where people come to the Lord. They have to, as the, as the guy said, hear the music before they're ready for the words. Now we saw earlier how wrong our thinking would be if we defined evangelism too broadly by assuming the producing of converts was our personal responsibility. There's also an opposite mistake which we need to avoid. That's the mistake of of defining evangelism too narrowly. And one way of making this mistake is to define evangelism institutionally. By that I mean in terms of holding particular type of evangelistic meetings uh, or revivals so to speak or crusade or something like that that that, that is evangelism you know you def- that's what evangelism means kind of defining evangelism institutionally where you have a that particular type of meeting and testimonies are given and choruses are sung and uh, somebody gives a message and there's a an appeal made at the close by either raising your hand or standing or coming to the front uh, having someone sign a card or something that they've received Christ if we equate the church's evangelistic responsibility with holding such meetings or um, the individual Christian's evangelistic ministry of uh, simply bringing people to those type of meetings we would really be going astray of what, how the Bible talks about evangelism. You can't define it institutionally. There are many ways of bringing, of, of bringing the gospel to the unconverted besides getting them to a meeting like this. There's a way of personal evangelism. You know, Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Philip brought Nathaniel. Paul won Onesimus, he says in, uh, in Philemon. There, there are individual home groups where you just get together and have a neighborhood. Your neighborhood gets together. Uh, maybe you get together once a month or whatever and begin with you just, just having fun and getting to know your neighbors and caring for one another and, and it develops into something else. Uh, as, as God leads or there's a small group Bible study all these are methods that can bring people to the Lord and most important most important are the regular weekly Sunday services it's a mistake to suppose that evangelistic sermons are some sort of special brand of sermons unrelated to preaching in general <laughs> on Sunday morning Puritan Robert Bolton said this, The Lord Jesus Christ is offered most freely and without exception of any person every Sabbath, every sermon, either plain, either in plain and direct terms or impliedly at the least. Unquote. If you just, if you just look at our order, order of service, the gospel is presented in the service every week. We have where we where we acknowledge God and His presence. We confess our sins. We hear the good news of salvation. Uh, we have the sacraments. We have which which also explain the gospel. 
uh, every, every service. And the message itself, of course. Imagine a local church that was giving itself wholeheartedly to evangelism by these means I just mentioned, by by small home groups, home Bible studies, the Sunday morning service, but they never had a special evangelistic meeting like I described a moment ago. Uh, Should we conclude that the church is not evangelizing? No, of course not. It's like saying, well, if you don't wear cowboy boots and a hat, you're not American, you know. It, it needs to be said that a special meeting or service is not also not necessarily evangelistic. Just because you have people giving testimonies and choruses are sung and an appeal is made doesn't necessarily mean it's evangelistic. What, the question needs to be asked, what was actually taught before the appeal? You see... Now, I say these things not to, not to grind a, a polemical axe <laughs> against, uh, you know, special evangelistic meetings. Um, but, in the interest of, but really in the interest of thinking clearly about this and about evangelism, how we define evangelism. Evangelism is not defined institutionally in the kinds of meetings held, but theologically in terms of actually what is taught and for what purpose. All right. Point two, this is again, we're we're using uh, J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Point two, what is the evangelistic message? In a word, the evangelistic message is the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. The message of man's sins and God's grace and human guilt and divine forgiveness, of new birth and new life uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a message made up of four essential ingredients. First, the gospel is a message about God. It's a message about God. It tells us who He is in His character. And what his standards are. And what he requires of us, his creatures. It tells us that we owe our very existence to him. That either for good or ill, we are always in his hands and under his eye. And that he made us to worship him and to serve him. And to show forth his praise and to live for his glory. These truths are foundational to theistic religion. And until they're grasped, the real gospel message will not be either cogent or relevant. It'll not be understandable or relate to life. And it's here that the assertion of man's complete dependence upon God uh, starts the Christian story. That's where it has to start. That we are totally dependent on God. He created all things. He created this universe to uh, be able to sustain man. He, He keeps it going. In Him, we live and move and have our being. So we're totally dependent on God. We can we can learn from Paul at this point. Um, if you turn to Acts chapter thirteen, so this is Paul in uh, Antioch. 
And he's speaking to Jews here in the synagogue. He, he, uh, he says, starting verse 16, So Paul stood up and mostly with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with it. Put up with them in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And he goes on and on. And in verse 23, uh, excuse me, verse 22, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So, he's speaking to Jews who already had a background about God because they had the Old Testament. So he didn't have to start at creation. He starts with what they already know about who God is and then goes from there to say how through, the, through the, David... The Savior would come through his line. The Savior would come, and he proceeds from there in presenting the message. But turn to Acts chapter 17, where he's preaching to Gentiles who did not have that Old Testament background. And uh, after saying that uh, he found uh, an, found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human needs as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And he even quotes from their, from their own uh, sources, their own uh, Greek philosophers, in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. And then uh, he says, For we are, his we are indeed his offspring. Which is again a quote from Eratus's poem. So he begins where they are. And when, when they don't have any background at all, he begins with God as the creator and the one who is over all things and one whom we are dependent on for life. By the way, this, this message in Acts 17 of Paul was not um, a supposed piece of philosophical um, polemic, apologetic, if you will, of a kind that he afterwards renounced since he didn't get much response from it. That's not the case at all. But it was the first and basic lesson in theistic faith. The gospel starts by teaching us that we as creatures are absolutely dependent on God. And that He as Creator has absolute claim on us and on our lives. That's the starting point for, that's the starting point for, for uh, a person who has no background at all. No church background. Uh, you start with God.
And uh, you know, I, I'm a, I know uh, there, are, there are different approaches in apologetics, uh, but I, I'm, a, I'm sort of a presuppositionalist, which means that I don't try to prove God's existence. I assume God's existence, just as the Bible does. In the beginning, God. <laughs> That's my assumption. And the, the question is, do all the facts that, all the facts that we do know, do they, do, which, which theory most reflects the facts? That there is a God or that there isn't? Uh, and some want to, tr- want to try to prove the existence of God, but then you're actually, you're actually using God's, you're actually using man's reasoning above, <laughs> and putting it above the God who is there, in, in essence. Uh, But only when we learn that we can, only when we've learned our our condition under God that we're totally dependent on Him, can we really then see what sin is. And it's only when we can see what sin is that we can understand the good news of salvation. Nothing can be achieved by talking about sin and salvation where that underlying lesson isn't taught about God and Him first. Uh, you know, I'm not a real bumper sticker fan. <laughs> and uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the worst, I think, is uh, Jesus is the answer. <laughs> it's like, well, what's the question? I mean, what do you... Well, <laughs> it's like, how is it even relevant, you know? <laughs> Okay, it's a good place to stop because we just finished that handout. We'll have a new handout next week. Uh, Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Uh, Thank you for what we can learn from the Apostle Paul's evangelistic ministry and how we can put that into practice in our lives, Father. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for your word, that we can rely on it, that it is our absolute authority uh, under you, Father. So thank you, and we pray as we uh, look to our worship service coming, Lord, that we pray you be with Paul as he brings the message this morning, fill him with your spirit, Father, Uh, apply the truths taught to our lives, Lord, that we might glorify you. In Christ we ask, amen. (laughs)